for those of you who are married here this morning, do you remember what it was like the first time that you met your spouse? I, I remember what it was like the first time that I met Miranda. Um, is she in here or is she in Children's Church? Yeah. <laughs> I think she's in children's church. I was hoping I'd get a little brownie points here. When I first met her, I thought she was the most beautiful thing that I had ever seen in my life. And I still think the same thing. Now, it was a different story for her. (laughs) She didn't like me a bit. (laughs) But I'm persistent. (laughs) One quality that God gave me is I'm persistent. And uh, so... But but sometimes when when we have that initial attraction, right? When we first when we first saw our spouse or when we first experienced that initial attraction, something happens when you move from that initial attraction to growing into a real relationship, isn't there? There's a difference. There's something that happens as you move from initial attraction to relationship, you really want to know everything that you can about each other. You know, when you first meet and everything, you're, you're kind of on your bet, not kind of, you're definitely on your best behavior and all that, and you really don't, you really don't know anything. But as your relationship grows, you want to grow that. You want to find out everything that you can about each other. You want to know what your likes and your dislikes are. You want to learn what makes each other tick. And when two people really love each other, the longer that they've been married, the more and more that they desire to continue to learn about each other. Brandon and I have been married 31 years, and we're still learning stuff about each other. And we still want to learn more about each other. See, the fact is, if you're married, you understand that marriage is a lifetime of studying each other. Continually studying, continually learning about each other. So if you think about it on that level of a relationship, on a relationship that is only temporal, is only for this world, if you think about how you can spend a lifetime exploring and learning and studying a finite human being without expending everything that there is to know about that person, if you think about that, Why in the world do we think that studying God could be dull? As soon as I say the word theology, right? I can see it. I can watch. If I say theology, I can watch. I can watch your eyes just start to like glaze over, start to roll back in your head. You start thinking about what's for lunch and, you know, all those kinds of things. Soon, just as soon as I say the word theology, What you might not understand about the word theology is theology, that word itself is made from two Greek words, theos and logia. Now your eyes are really glazing over. Go from theology to talking about Greek. But theos is the word for God. And logia is the study of. So if we can spend a lifetime enjoying the study of our spouse... Why don't we want to spend a lifetime studying God, studying who He is, studying the depths and the riches of God? That's what theology is. Theology is literally studying God. Theology is intensely studying the One who loved you enough to create you. 
Because theology is intensely studying the one who loves you enough to bless you with life. And if you're saved here this morning, he's blessed you with new life in him. Theology is intensely studying the one who chose you, even though there was nothing worthy in you to be worthy of that choice, who chose you and called you and drew you and saved you and gave you his name. Theology is studying the one who loved you enough to do that. Theology is intensely studying the one who loves you enough that he's promised that he's coming back to get you. Theology is intensely studying God. Now, theology isn't boring. Theology isn't boring. If theology is dry to you, then you're doing it wrong. (laughs) Because it's not. Accurate theology is glorious. Accurate theology is wonderful. Accurate theology is beautiful. It's rich. It feeds your soul. And accurate theology is a necessity for every believer. If you're married, you want nothing more than than to devote your life to accurately knowing more and more about your spouse. And that's just a glimpse of how devoted we need to be to studying God. Our passage this morning, we come across one man at the end of chapter 18, and then we come across a group of people at the beginning of chapter 19 who were suffering from inaccurate theology. They didn't even know that they were suffering from inaccurate theology, but they were. The first that we're going to look at is a really sharp guy by the name of Apollos. Apollos. Look at verses 24 through 28 again. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross into Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So while Paul, you remember we're traveling along with Paul on on these different missionary journeys. While he was spending time, he had just completed his second missionary journey, and he was spending um, spending time at his home church. Uh, recovering and and just, I guess, renewing and refreshing himself at his home church in Antioch. And while he was there in Antioch, this guy Apollo, Apollos shows up in Ephesus. Well, Ephesus was like the last stop that Paul made before he headed back to his home church. So he left there, went back to his home church to spend some time there. Then this guy Apollos shows up there in Ephesus. Now, when Paul was in Ephesus, remember, he was only there for a very short time, but he left a couple there to start the church while he went home. He left this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, there to plant the church for him while he was gone to get it started. Well, he had, he didn't, you know, these two weren't just fresh off the boat. He had spent some time with them, spent about two years with them in Corinth really getting them up to speed. They were, he was discipling them well there, showing them uh, how, to, how to work with the church and all of that. Then they came with him to Ephesus. They planted the church there while Paul was gone. 
Now, what's what's interesting to me was God had called Priscilla and Aquila to plant the church there while Paul was gone. But apparently, I mean, there were a couple of things that were very unique about that. Even though they were the, the core church planting team, neither one of them were going to take the lead preaching role. Of course, Priscilla had sat under Paul enough that she knew that the lead preaching role, the lead pastoral role of the church was God has designed for that to be uh, a man's position. So she wasn't qualified to do that, and apparently Aquila, for whatever reason, maybe he wasn't gifted for that position or whatever, but he wasn't the lead preacher or the lead pastor of that church. Of that church. So... They planted the church, but they needed somebody to be their pastor, to be their their lead preacher. So God sent them this man named Apollos. Apollos. And Apollos was sharp. I mean, you see the description of him here. He was a fantastic communicator. He knew his Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards. He was a great teacher. He could teach the content of the Old Testament scriptures. He was a dynamic preacher, a dynamic teacher. He was a captivating teacher. He had been taught well, educated well, up to a point. He, he knew the Old Testament. He knew Jesus. He knew how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. He understood that Jesus was the Messiah who was sent from God to draw people to himself. He knew that Jesus was God in the flesh. He knew that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He knew that Jesus rose again and gives us new life in him. He knew all of those things. But the problem was he thought that something needed to be added to that in order for salvation to happen. He thought that baptism was a necessary work of repentance that was required for salvation. He was trying to add the baptism of repentance that was that had been taught by John the Baptist. He was trying to add that on as a requirement to salvation. See, he didn't have the New Testament understanding of baptism that we described back here just a minute ago. He didn't have the, the picture of baptism or the understanding of baptism. The baptism is a picture of the work that Jesus has done, has already accomplished to cleanse us from sin. No, Apollos' understanding of baptism was that it was a work that we do in order to experience repentance, in order to be cleansed. Well, that's not too far off from the way that some people think of baptism today, is it? Some people think of baptism in that same way. What you need to understand is that's inaccurate theology. Accurate theology says that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to God's Word alone, for God's glory alone. That's what accurate theology says. Accurate theology says that Jesus didn't need any help in cleansing us of our sins. Amen? Accurate theology says that Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross is sufficient to cover our sins. Jesus' blood and Jesus' blood alone. If you're saved here this morning, your sins were washed, your sins were covered by the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross, and there is nothing that can add to or take away from that, period. That's accurate theology. I know that. Priscilla and Aquila knew that. I hope you know that. The problem was, was Apollos didn't know that. Apollos didn't know that. So Priscilla and Aquila... They blasted him publicly, right? 
They, they got on a watch blog and they started started writing all this stuff on the internet. They they sent out Twitter blasts against him, right? Because his theology was wrong. Is that what happened? No. What they do? They pulled him aside. They pulled him aside and they taught him. They taught him. They discipled him. And to his credit, he listened and he learned. He soaked up that good theology from them. And when he soaked up that good theology from them, oh, God used him in an incredible, mighty way. He, he left Ephesus and he went to Corinth and and he took on a preaching role in Corinth. As a matter of fact, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians later on, he says that Apollos planted, I watered, God gave the increase. So Apollos was used mightily by God. He started off with inaccurate theology, but God used Priscilla and Aquila to disciple him in accurate theology. So then we move from Apollos to this other group of people who were suffering from inaccurate theology and didn't know it. We see their story in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 19. <clears throat> and it happened that while, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So after this initial scene in Ephesus, Apollos headed back, back to Corinth. And while Apollos was in Corinth, it was time for Paul to start his third missionary journey. So this is the transition from the second to the third missionary journey. Sorry we didn't get a map in the bulletin. We'll have that in there next week and we can follow along. But this is, this is the transition. So Paul leaves his home church at Antioch and he heads back to the churches that he had planted along the way. He headed back to uh, Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch. So he moves all the way along that route. And <laughs> this time, you remember when he headed out on the second missionary journey, after he planted those churches, he, he, he wanted to go into Asia, but the Holy Spirit told him he couldn't go. This time he gets the green light and he gets to head straight into Asia. So he heads straight to Ephesus. He heads straight back to the church that this brand new baby church that Priscilla and Aquila had started in Ephesus. So he, he, because he wanted to encourage and check out the, the work there and see what was going on. But before he was able to meet up with Priscilla and Aquila, he, on the way, he runs into this group, this really interesting group of 12 guys, 12 guys who were who knows what they were doing? And really, it doesn't tell us, Scripture doesn't tell us how he started up the conversation with them. I don't know, maybe there was like an Ephesian coffee shop or something, and these 12 guys were there, and he starts up, I don't know. We can speculate all we want to about how he started up the conversation. He might have started up the conversation by talking to them about the new church in town and inviting them to that. Who knows? There are all kinds of ways that we can start up conversations with people, aren't there? 
The point is, is that somehow this conversation got started and immediately Paul moved the conversation from wherever it started into a gospel conversation. Paul's conversation, Paul's gospel conversation with them immediately revealed that their theology was woefully incomplete. You ever been in a conversation with somebody and you can immediately tell that their theology is whack? It doesn't take very long, does it? And that's where it got in this conversation. Paul realized that their theology was just woefully inadequate. As this conversation went on, they told Paul about being baptized and about how they'd carried on what they understood was the teaching of John the Baptist. But as Paul explored that conversation with them, it revealed that they understood baptism the same way that Apollos had understood baptism. They understood that it was a work that needed to be applied before the forgiveness of Christ could happen. They understood it as a meritorious work, as something that we had to do that was required for repentance. But these guys, these guys were even in worse shape than Apollos was because at least Apollos knew Jesus, right? He he knew the teaching of Jesus. He knew Jesus. These folks didn't even know Jesus. These folks were still looking for the Messiah to come. Now, who knows when they followed John the Baptist? I don't know. They must have quit following him sometime, sometime before John the Baptist baptized Jesus. But whatever it was, they didn't even know the Messiah. They were lost. Apollos' inaccurate theology caused him to teach bad doctrine and live in the bondage of works-based righteousness. But at least Apollos was saved. These folks' bad theology... Caused them to not even know who Jesus, not even know Jesus. Apollos was saved but confused. These folks were confused and lost. These guys' inaccurate theology caused them to think that they were saved when they weren't. So Paul gave them the good news about Jesus. And when he gave them the good news about Jesus, the really good news is that they got saved. They got saved and when they got saved, they followed with a right understanding of baptism as a picture of what Jesus has already done for them. And then something really unique happened. Then they experienced these signs and wonders, right? They experienced the same kinds of signs and wonders that happened, if you've been with us throughout the book of Acts, these same signs and wonders that happened all the way back in Acts 2 at, at Pentecost, and then it happened to the first Samaritan believers and then the first Gentile believers. This was, you can think of this as the final group of firsts in the book of Acts. So let's correct a little theology here. Because I know we can read that and we can, and there are folks that have taken these very verses to come up with some pretty inaccurate theology. So let's correct a little theology here. This is a descriptive passage of what happened to 12 guys in Ephesus. It's not a prescriptive passage for what should happen to all believers. So get that out of the way first. This is still part of the transitional phase of the birth of the church. 
It's still the time when believers didn't have access. They had access to the Old Testament, but they didn't have access to the completed work of Scripture like we do. They didn't have the complete revealed Word of God. God's Word wasn't able to be confirmed in His all-sufficient completed Scripture. So during this time, God sometimes chose to confirm His Word with these miraculous signs and wonders. And that's what He was doing here. He was confirming Paul's testimony. He was confirming His Word with this miraculous sign for these people. Those who try to use this passage as as some sort of a proof text to say that it's possible to be saved and then still have to work for some sort of a second blessing to receive the Holy Spirit later on after that, they don't understand this text or the rest of the Bible. Later on, when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, he wrote this in in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Right at the beginning of his letter, he says this, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It wasn't some sort of a subsequent blessing. It wasn't something that happens later on, or wasn't something that happens only to some. At the moment of salvation, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The moment, the very moment that you confess Jesus as your Lord and Master and Savior, the Holy Spirit took up residence in you, and He is actively sanctifying you. In other words, He's actively turning you more and more like Jesus every day. And from the very moment that you confess Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior, the Holy Spirit permanently sealed you. And a permanent seal can't be removed. Amen? He permanently sealed you, and that means that He will never, ever, ever leave you or forsake you. The inaccurate theology of these twelve men made them think that they were saved when they weren't. But Paul taught them. He discipled them. And to their eternal benefit, they listened and they believed the gospel. They trusted Jesus, and then they followed Him in baptism. They started off with inaccurate theology, but God used Paul to disciple them with accurate theology, and when they were discipled with accurate theology, they were saved. Two stories. Two stories. True stories, historical narratives. Two stories. One man and twelve men who both had suffered from inaccurate theology. One was caused by incomplete instruction. Apollos knew only the Old Testament. He knew about Jesus, but he didn't understand the true nature of grace. The other was caused by a complete lack of instruction. Apparently these guys had been only in on the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. They weren't around for the part where John the Baptist said, I must decrease that he must, that he might increase. Or like some folks that listened to only parts of the preaching. Maybe they only heard part of it, and they didn't pick up on that part. But theirs was caused by a complete lack of instruction. They were religious. They were lost. Just like so many people in our area are. How many times can you get in a conversation with folks that will turn very religious or very spiritual? 
And then as you engage, find out that they don't know Jesus at all or who they think they know as Jesus isn't even close. It's all over the place. So many people around us, they'll tell us, oh, yeah, I pray. Me and the man upstairs, we got a good thing going. So many of them are steeped in just a wicked devil's brew of superstition, religion, karma, sentimentality with Jesus tacked into the middle of it. And they're so steeped in that nasty, wicked brew that they wouldn't even recognize the real Jesus if He was presented to them. But you know what? Jesus has already presented Himself, hasn't He? He's presented Himself clearly and truly and perfectly in His Word. His Word that in our culture today is twisted and undermined and doubted and neglected and just flat ignored. So is accurate theology important? (laughs) Accurate theology is eternally important. So since theology is that important, let me give you three things that you need to do to have accurate theology. First thing you need to do is you need to humbly submit to God's design. Don't ever forget that God is inscrutable. Man, I'm throwing fun words at you this morning, aren't I? Throwing fun words like theology and inscrutable. Inscrutable, that's a keeper. You might want to remember that. Saying that God is inscrutable, what we're saying is that God is completely beyond our finite capability of understanding. Who can comprehend just the concept of infinity? What's two times infinity? What's half of infinity? I mean, that just when you begin to try to even think about that, it blows your mind. Just the concept of infinity. Who can comprehend that God is completely self-existent? That God has no beginning and has no ending. Who can comprehend that? Who can comprehend the triune nature of God? That last song that we sang, singing about the triunity of God, that God is three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in one God, perfectly one in essence completely indivisible. Who can fathom that? Who can comprehend that Jesus exists as 100% human and 100% God? And that there is nothing ever at any time that has emptied Jesus of His Godness. Who can comprehend that? Who can comprehend that God is completely and totally sovereign over all things, including salvation, and at the same time, we have real responsibility and choice? Who who can comprehend that? 
Who can comprehend the fact that no one will get saved unless God sovereignly chooses them, and at the same time, no one will get saved unless you and I choose to proclaim the gospel and they choose to believe it? Who can grasp that? If you're going to have accurate theology, there comes a point when you need to understand that you ain't going to understand it all. Amen? And just because you can't understand it doesn't make it untrue. The first part of Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Heard a, I think it was Adrian Rogers or one of those guys. <coughs> they probably copied it off somebody else. But they said, quit trying to unscrew the inscrutable. We don't have the capability to unscrew the inscrutable. We always get into trouble when we try to do that. When we try to make God fit into something that can fit inside of our finite, small brains. Embrace the tensions of Scripture. Accept those tensions as God's mysterious, infinite greatness. That takes us to the second thing you need to do to have accurate theology. The first thing you need to do is you need to humbly submit to God's design. Secondly, humbly receive God's Word. Deuteronomy 29.29 goes on to say, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. There are some things that, that God has chosen to keep to Himself. He's chosen to keep some things to Himself because we couldn't handle it. But the amazing thing is not those things that God has chosen to keep to Himself, but the amazing thing is how much God has chosen to reveal to us about Himself. God has chosen to speak to us the infinite completely unfathomable God has chosen to condescend Himself to a point where He has spoken to us, where He's revealed Himself to us in His Word. The Holy Spirit inspired the apostles and the prophets to record His inerrant and infallible Scripture to us so that we can know who He is. Once you come to the realization that you're never going to fully comprehend all there is to know about God, then you need to realize all that you can possibly know about God is included in His Word. So read the Bible. Read the Bible. Have somebody else read the Bible to you. Study the Bible. Faithfully sit under the regular preaching and teaching of the Bible. Engage in discussions about the Bible. We have a perfect discussion, a perfect forum for engaging in discussion of Scripture every Sunday evening at six o'clock called New Life Gathering, where we take the text and we discuss the text. Discuss it. Don't get the answers from your theological questions from Google or YouTube. Amen. Uh, mm. Get the answers to your theological questions from the preached, taught, studied, applied Word of God. And study it like your life depends on it. Because your eternal life does depend on it. 
Humbly submit to God's design. Humbly receive God's Word. Finally, humbly do God's work. Finish up Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. That we may do. All the words of this law. You look at these groups. When, when Apollos, Apollos received the accurate theology, he went. He, he didn't just keep it to himself. He didn't just write books. He didn't just... No, he went. Accurate theology resulted in him going to Corinth on mission for Jesus. Accurate theology resulted in these, these 12 guys resulted in them testifying and proclaiming Jesus with their mouths and proclaiming Jesus in the waters of baptism. In other words, accurate theology always results in doing the work that God has called us to do. James chapter 1 verse 22 says, but be doers of the word, not just hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Here's the reality. There are plenty of people who claim to have a perfectly complete, clear understanding of theological truth. But if that knowledge doesn't result in a changed life, then it's fake. Then they're deceived. Theology that doesn't result in a changed life is worthless no matter how accurate it might seem. So has the truth about Jesus changed your life? Have you submitted to Jesus' plan for your life? Do you hunger for His Word? Do you long to know Jesus more and more deeply as He's revealed Himself in His Word? Well, if not, then today's the day that you need to change that. Today's the day to... Humble yourself. See, if you noticed, each one of those three points started with humbly. You can't be arrogant and have accurate theology. So the first thing that you need to do is humble yourself. Today's the day to humble yourself. Humble yourself by first admitting that you don't know it all. Humble yourself by committing to reading and studying the Bible to know as much as you can. And humble yourself by faithfully applying and doing what you do know. But understand though, understand this. You can't do any of that until you've accepted Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior. You can't humble yourself to do any of those until you've humbled yourself before Jesus as your Lord and Master. So they really, that's the question is, do you know Him this morning? And today's the day you can. Let's pray. Father, we, li <clears throat> we live in an age that is absolutely permeated with inaccurate, incomplete, and false teaching. So, Father, if there are any here who are... Um, 
suffering from inaccurate theology. Lord, I'd ask that your spirit would humble them. Father, we know that it's Jesus who saves. It's not our ability to pontificate about the finer points of doctrine. But it's only the true Jesus that saves. Father, I'd ask that we would see Him. Father, as the song says, show show us ourselves and show us our Savior. Father, we ask that Your Spirit would would do that at this time. And Father, when Your Spirit does that, Lord, may we respond. May we be faithful to respond to Your direction. In Jesus' name, amen.